Good morning and welcome to Essex Church. Our community of Kensington Unitarians meets here every week to worship. And we're joined in our community by all who use our building, all who walk through our doors, all who join us in time and space afar, listening to us on a podcast. We are an open and inclusive community. And whoever you are, wherever you're from, however you are, welcome home. My name is Tristan Jovanovich. I've been a member of this community for about seven years. And this morning, Sarah, our minister, is having some time off to relax. She texted me thanking her, thanking me for giving her a morning off and saying that she hopes everybody's going to be on their best behavior. I'll light our chalice this morning, the symbol of our worldwide Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist faith, with words from the Reverend Tet Gallardo, the minister in the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Philippines. Sometimes there is certainty, sometimes wonder, sometimes something's looming, and sometimes there is loss. Sometimes there is a start, sometimes an end, sometimes there is, sometimes there is rest and nothing needs doing. But we will always be part of the world going round, even in life or death. Should we be dust floating on the water or breath or ash in the wind after it's been eaten by flames? What is important is this minute this moment together, where we shall remain as if it would never end. As we <clears throat> come together for a few moments of prayer and reflection, you might want to put your things down, focus on the candles, hold those things in your heart which are too delicate to share. And we pray, come Holy Spirit, breathe down upon our troubled world, shake the tired foundations of our crumbling institutions, Break the rules that keep you out of all our sacred places. And from the dust and rubble, gather up the seedlings of a new creation. Come, Holy Spirit, inflame once more the dying embers of our weariness. Shake us out of our complacency. Whisper our names once more and scatter your gifts of grace with wild abandon. Break open the prisons of our inner beings and let your raging justice be a sign of liberty. Come, Holy Spirit, and lead us to places we would rather not go. Expand the horizons of our limited imaginations. Awaken in our souls dangerous dreams for a new tomorrow 
and rekindle in our hearts the fire of prophetic enthusiasm. Come, Holy Spirit, whose justice outwits international conspiracy, whose light outshines religious bigotry, whose peace can halt our patriarchal hunger for dominance and control, whose promise invigorates our every effort to create a new heaven and a new earth, now and forever. Amen. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the young son gathered all he had and travelled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his eldest son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked him what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then the brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This brings us to some meditation. And then we'll have some, si we'll have some silence together. And then some music. This is really a Christmas reading. 
But I think we're just out of Christmas, so it will still ring very true. It's called All I Want for Christmas. So perhaps we'll call it All I Wanted for Christmas. A time of year has just gone when we ask and are asked, what do you want? Shall it be another tie? No. A new pair of gloves or a book? We ask and we answer, we shop, we wrap and we ship. And the season usually comes and goes without us ever really answering the question, what do you want? Some of the things we want, we might be afraid to ask for because we can't be sure what we would do if we got them. Many things we want, we don't know enough to ask for. Many things we can't ask for because no one we know can give them to us. Many people ask the question without any real interest in knowing. Yet it can be a question for each of us to hold on to for a time in our hearts and minds. What do we want? Not what would we like, but what do we want to give us a deeper connection with life and to help us give expression to our love? Not a long list of things, but a sense of clarity that illuminates what it is we are doing and why. Not outward signs of generosity, but an inward sense of caring that guides us to give in any season. Not just the reflex of always giving, but also the courage to truly answer some of those people who ask us, what do you want? Dare to answer. Dare to think of the things you want and the things that others close to you might want. Imagine the ways they might be given and received. What do you want?
I was putting things together for today, um, a second reading was a great challenge. And because I didn't want to be reading from theological texts, so I turned to Google, and Google turned up a blog, and it's very good. God is irresponsible, hopelessly so. In the well-worn parable of the prodigal son, it seems that Jesus is telling us that God can't be bothered to consider the consequences of his actions, God's or those of sinners. God is feckless, ridiculously so. This is the gospel of our Lord. Yet to our minds, God's love, demonstrated in this parable, seems rather immoral. It doesn't sit well with us. It casts aside right and wrong. There are no consequences, no lessons. God seems to appear in this story in the role of a doddering old fool, manipulated by the half-cooked apology of the prodigal to forget all that has passed. Not only this, but the father ignores the harm done to the other son, the one who stayed at home, the one who followed the rules, And the father does harm the other son. The father's indiscriminate love to the prodigal wounds the brother, as it would us all. But what if? What if God isn't the father in this story? What if God is instead the prodigal son, who seems so irresponsible? What if God is the God who comes to us in the, in the disguise of those we despise, those who have hated and killed us, those who have rejected us and abandoned us, those who annoy and frustrate us the most, those who are excluded? 
in the guise of the sinner, the debauched, the prostitute, the unclean, the enemy, the unsavory, God comes to us and challenges us to participate in a radical, irresponsible hospitality that turns the rules of polite society upside down. And if God comes to us like that, how do we respond? As the Father does? Do we subvert social norms and open our lives to the chaos the prodigal brings? Or do we do as the brother does, maintaining society's values, but closing off life to the other? In this parable, Jesus is asking us whether we will entertain angels, even if the angels look like demons, like exactly what we fear and loathe. He's asking us whether we can overcome our prejudice and the oppression of religiosity to open our arms enough to embrace the other, the other who is actually our closest kin. Jesus once said that once we have seen the thirsty, the oppressed, the imprisoned, the lame, the blind, the abused, the neglected, then we have seen him. Not some metaphorical carbon copy. Him. And Jesus invites us to open our banqueting tables to him wherever we find him. This story is prefaced in Luke with concerns from a religious elite about the community Jesus kept at table. It wasn't matter, a simple matter either. It wasn't simply transgressing social norms. To the people of the time, those who you ate with determined who you were. Because Jesus supped with the unclean, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the worst of the worst, Jesus too was unclean, the tax collector, the prostitute, the worst of the worst. Jesus, God, in this case, isn't the father. God is the prodigal. Jesus asks whether we will accept him, even if he reeks of what we think is unwashed sin. He asks us whether we will embrace him, unclean and unsavory to our tastes with the lavish grace of a banquet. He asks us whether we will run out to meet him when we see him lost, alone, bedraggled and abused. Whether we will be eager and expectant to do the irresponsible thing of living out the good news. He asks us whether we, like the father in the story, have the generosity to accept him as he appears, or whether we, like the brother, will demand that God not be so irresponsible and insist that God only come to us in the ways we find acceptable. <coughs> so we've had two versions of the prodigal son. The standard version from the Gospel of Luke and then the upside down version. It's the longest parable. Perhaps only the Good Samaritan has a rival for being well known. And it's got lots of names as well, depending on the version of the Bible you look in. The Lost Son, the Compassionate Father. I think the Other Brother's a good name as well. And this parable has been the subject of paintings and songs and thought and the formation of Christian thinking around sin and redemption for a really, really long time. But it's just a plot summary, really. And 
parables the way Jesus told them, he would have told them over and over again. And they would have changed and developed and he would have modified them for his audience, as good speakers do, and added in details they would identify with. There's this story in other religious traditions as well. There's a Buddhist version of the story, which I really wanted to include, but it's really long because it's got all the details in it. So let's recap. We have a father and two sons. No mother is mentioned. She might be there and silent. Maybe she's not there at all. The younger son goes to his father and asks him for his inheritance. Now, I'd always heard that that was a terrible thing to do. It was kind of like going to your father and saying, I wish you were dead, give me my money. But apparently, at least according to Marcus Borg, and I do trust him, um, that's not necessarily the case. It was a perfectly normal thing to do. Now, in my mind, the story is more poignant if we hold the first version of that to be the case, but at least we have some perspective. The son goes a long way away. He goes to a Gentile land. And we hear here echoes of the exile from Eden. And whilst he's there, he lives it up. He burns through his money. And then the place goes into famine, and he and I imagine the people around him end up desperate. Now remember, Jesus was a Jew, and he's speaking to Jews, so we will assume that he's talking about a Jew. And he's so desperate that he goes to look after the pigs, which are unclean animals, very unclean animals. And so he thinks, if I go back and apologize to my dad, he'll take me back into his household. At least I can work off the money. And so he picks himself up and goes home. Now, I've, I've never been to Palestine. I've lived in the desert and it's bright and it's hot. Even when you're in some small patch of arable land, it's bright and hot. And you can see a really, really long way. So imagine you see somebody you love approaching. You'll know that person because of how they walk, because of how they carry themselves. And that's what happens here. The father sees his son far off and he runs to meet him. He brushes away the apology. He never acknowledges it. Possibly he knows it's not true. Instead, he gets a party going. And the prodigal, a consummate party animal from everything we've heard, is probably very pleased about this, and so he gets on partying. And then his brother rocks up. He doesn't go to the party, but he sends a servant in to find out what's going on. And then he refuses to go in. So one more time, father goes to son. He's upset because the rules aren't followed, because he's led a conventional life and feels that he hasn't had any reward. And this is the bit I find the most compelling. It's where I tend to want to cry. The father says to him, everything I have is yours. I love you, but your brother has returned. Could I do anything but rejoice? So who's who? There's the younger son. Is he God? Is he you and me? I've always assumed that he's you and me. 
So reading the upside-down version of the parable was quite a shock. God is feckless? No. It's, it's an affront, really. But it's the sort of affrontery we should expect from Jesus. If he was sitting here right now, he wouldn't be the cuddly good shepherd from the Sunday school wall. No, no, he would be shocking us, either with the idea of a profligate God, or just the idea that if you want to find out who you are, go out into the world and find out who you are. It's not a bad thing. You don't have to be responsible all the time. Jesus started his parables with invitations to think. So what do you think? Are you the younger son? Would you be shocked if you weren't? Because the younger son went off to find out who he was. And then when others around us do that, suddenly we're the other brother. He's done as he should, we've done as we should, and he wants his reward. We come to church, we collect for charity, we try not to harm other people. Shouldn't we be rewarded for that? Don't we deserve something? No, we don't. And my argument around that is because I've rejected so much of traditional Christianity, I hold on to very little of it, but one thing I still can't let go of is this idea of the grace of God. The elder son finds grace difficult because it's against the rules. It's not deserved. But then when we're not on the receiving end of grace, we feel the same way. It's normal. And so we come to the father. Could he do anything but rejoice? No, he's a father. And the father in this story is fascinating. We read him as God, often. No matter what happens, all we need to do is go to him and we'll be welcomed home. It doesn't matter what we've done or who we are, we are God's children. And the universalist in me is very happy about that and very satisfied. But what if we're the father? Do we accept everybody with universal love? Are we even capable of it? Or are we still mean with our affections for the stranger, for the refugee, for the lost, for the poor, for the visitor, for the homeless, for the transsexual, for the differently colored, for the uneducated? Do we dare open our lives to others? Are we willing to be vulnerable? Or do we close ourselves off and rest in what we already know? So I kind of find us here at a theological crossroads. I tend to subscribe to process theology, which is in a very small and bad summary, the idea that we create God, with, we create the world with God, and God is affected by us and vice versa. And that tends to a sort of randomness. If God is constantly in flux then, then surely that gives credence to the idea that life is completely random and perfectly random, and if we say that God is the prodigal son, then that rings true. God pops up in unexpected places. But then at the same time, God is steadfast, constant in love, the unending, undying, all-encompassing light of the world and all creation. There is a wonderful poem by the Rabbi, Rabbi Rami Shapiro that holds this idea of an unending God. We are loved by an unending love. 
We are embraced by arms that find us even when we are hidden from ourselves. We are touched by fingers that soothe us even when we are too proud for soothing. We are counseled by voices that guide us even when we are too embittered to hear. We are loved by an unending love. We are supported by hands that uplift us even in the midst of a fall. We are urged on by eyes that meet us, even when we are too weak for meeting. We are loved by an unending love, embraced, touched, soothed and counseled. Ours are the fingers, the arms, the voices. Ours are the hands, the eyes and the smiles. We are loved by an unending love. So maybe a theological crossroads is the wrong idea. Maybe it's a roundabout. Maybe God is random and steadfast because God is still speaking. To quote a recent paper by Stephen Lingwood, a Unitarian minister in Britain, a core commitment of Unitarianism is the continuity and progressive nature of revelation. The American theologian James Luther Adams wrote, religious liberalism depends first on the principle that revelation is continuous meaning it has not been finally captured. The end of a religious text is not the end of Revelation. So maybe we are both brothers and the Father. Maybe all those characters knock about inside of us. We can't speak too much about God. All we get are glimpses, and they come at moments of introspection and interaction, they are arms and fingers and voices and hands and eyes and smiles. We are loved by an unending love. So what does it all mean? This parable sits amongst other lost and found parables in the gospel. At a point when Jesus is being criticized by the lawyers for eating with sinners and tax collectors. In the culture of the time, those with whom you ate defined who you were. Eating with sinners and prostitutes made you a sinner and a prostitute too. And so by flying in the face of social norms, Jesus was telling people that those despised were part of God's kingdom too. Let's look beyond that though. What does the parable mean for us now? That we can't trust God because God is random? No. For me, it continues to affirm God's steadfast love in all creation. The story speaks of exile, and as Marcus Borg said, we are in exile for our whole lives. We're not in sin, we're in exile. We're in exile simply because we have to grow up. It has nothing to do with being a bad person or a good person. This story is an archetypal story about humanity. Growing up shakes our faith. Growing up teaches us to divide the world linguistically, morally, religiously, scientifically, politically, it separates us from a conscious relationship with God. We begin to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world. It's unavoidable. It's who we are. It's how we are as humans. And those distinctions begin to separate us from the oneness of being, the spiritual life, the life that we lead together here, is therefore about a journey of consciously and intentionally recentering ourselves in oneness, in God, whatever you choose to call it. 
This story is about returning from all that chance can throw at us to the steadfastness of being one. We are loved by an unending love. Amen. Even when we are left far off, God meets us and calls us home. She meets us in the call of each other's hearts, in the grasp of each other's hands, in the gentle words on our neighbor's lips, in the love of our partner's eyes. Go and do his work. Be a blessing. You are loved by an unending.